Hi, welcome to Tube to Table, the podcast about helping tube-fed kids become happy and healthy eaters. Every week, we will dive into the basics of tube weaning to help unravel the conflicting information families get from doctors, therapists, friends, and family. I'm Jenny, a feeding therapist, mom, and food lover. And I'm Heidi. I'm also a feeding therapist, and I love sharing meals with friends and family and helping kids learn to eat. Come with us as we share practical tips and provide real-world expert advice so that parents can help their little ones start their journey from feeding tube to family table. Hello, and welcome to the Tube to Table podcast. This week's episode, we're going to be talking about blenderized diets and how they help kids with feeding tubes and how that is related to weaning them off of their tubes when they're ready. We have the good fortune today of being joined by our friend and owner of Real Food Blends, Julie Bombasino. Hi, Julie. How are you doing? Hi, Good. How are you? I'm doing really, really well. We're so excited. We've wanted you on. We've teased. Aww. We've teased about having a, this episode several times along the way. But we're so glad you're finally here. My honor. This is my favorite topic to talk about: is how um, food can help kiddos get off of feeding foods eventually, which goes hand in hand with the good work you guys are doing. So, thanks for having me. Of course, of course. Do you want to tell us a little bit about you and your family and the Real Food Blend story? Yeah, well, go way back to 2011, I guess. (laughs) So our son AJ was born in 2011. And at six months old, he had a pretty significant seizure, which landed us into this special needs world. And very quickly, a feeding tube was placed. So a G-tube was placed surgically because he was suspected of aspirating after seizures, especially. So from the time that he was six months till about a year, he, you know, we medicalized his mealtimes, as I like to say now, you know, he was pump fed, it was eight different formulas over that six-month time period. He vomited every single day. There was reflux issues involved, and he was chronically constipated. So it was a really, really scary time in all of our lives because, you know, I had been nursing him up until that point. And so I had this six months of he wasn't like that, and he wasn't puking every day. And then, you know, on these different formulas, he was. And we were so scared about every morsel of food going into his body and every, you know, milliliter and calorie and counting things and went through the rigmarole of continuing continuous feeds and overnight feeds and adding medications for the motility and just, I mean, I know I'm rambling. Everything. It was everything. Yeah. So many of our, our people go through, unfortunately. And so right around the time that he turned one, you know, I did what you're kind of not supposed to do, but I did what we do in this day and age. And I went online and I looked for other people, mostly moms, you know, going through similar things like, hey, you have a tube fed kid. And I found my tribe. Um, again, this is back in 2000, early 2012 at this point. And they were like, hey, have you tried blending up real food and putting that through his tube? And no, I hadn't. And so sure. <laughs> Give it a try. What do we have to lose? He's pooping every day. He can't poop on his own. He's miserable. He's not gaining weight like he's supposed to. And so, you know, my husband and I tease now as to where this has, you know, what that point in our lives, what it's become, because it's become our life's mission, you know, our, our purpose in life almost that, but we pushed 10 mLs of baby apple food, like so baby applesauce into his button. And we stood back like something crazy was going to happen. Like, I don't know if like CPS is going to come knocking through right. our door or he was going to throw it up or what, you know, he it's apples. It. Yeah. <laughs> like, it was like a teaspoon of applesauce, like into a one-year-old stomach. Like it's right. been done. Right. <laughs> Not crap. Scared we were. And I always think back whenever we get a, a new, you know, family coming to us and looking for just some guidance, I always think back to that scary time in our lives and how scared we were to just put you know, a teaspoon of applesauce into our kid's stomach that we knew it worked. Right. <laughs> you know, 
the stomach work because he had taken breast milk as for six months. So, and that's where kind of the ball went rolling on Real Food Blend. So very quickly from that point on, we got him 100% off of all formula. So he was on only real food within about 48 hours. Not typically what we would recommend. <laughs> you know, that- <laughs> But he was miserable. I'm like, he didn't puke. Like, okay, let's try this. And at that point in time, you know, we weren't sweating every calorie either. I was just so happy he wasn't puking. I'm like, we'll figure that part out later. Let's figure out if we can get some food in his stomach. And, you know, that's really where Real Food Blend started. We were super happy making all, you know, that he was doing so well, but we were making every single morsel of food that went into his stomach. We went looking for something, you know, kind of shelf stable or ready to feed just to give me a break from all that blending. There's a lot of stories around this. Like, I always think, uh, I mean, we went to Disney World with all of his blended accoutrements. Oh, my goodness. (laughs) Uh, Which is not fun. You know, a double stroller with both kids and the Vitamix blender. And we had to change hotels and blend food for him down there. Not easy. No, no. And then there was the one time that Luca, our daughter, Luca, who's two years older than AJ, she had a soccer game and, you know, it was a cold winter or spring day, I guess. And I was sitting in the car with the heat warmers on with AJ's bottle of blended food underneath my lap, trying to warm it up. Oh my goodness. (laughs) Mother hen trying to warm up her baby or something. You know, that's when we were like, all right, there's got to be something out there. And that's really where the inspiration for Real Food Blends came from. You know, we will always, always, always say fresh is best. Yeah. Everybody. But fresh is really, really difficult when it comes to, you know, this patient population, quote unquote. So, And it's it's also like not as a mom, like it's not realistic all the time either for anyone, tube or no tube, right? To give the fresh, the best food all the time. We as adults don't eat the best food all the time. But what you've created is... So is next the closest thing to the fresh that's out there that we we know about anyways. Well, and that was our intention. So there's quite a few things that went into, you know, the company that we didn't even realize was a thing, you know, because Tony and I, my husband, Tony, you know, co-founded the company with me. It came out of, you know, this element of normalcy. So we'd been feeding our daughter prior to feeding AJ food like this. And, you know, we fed her different things every day and for every meal. And we had breakfast, lunch, dinner. We didn't have continuous feeds and we didn't have a formula over and over again. Mm -hmm. So kind of unbeknownst to us, we did these these normal things that when you look at it from a a clinical or medical standpoint, it's not normal at all to have meals when you're on a feeding tube. You have a formula and that's what you get. And you slowly drip it in and oh, like vomiting happens. Right. <laughs> um, and these things were so not normal to us. And so that's why we now have six different meals. They only have real food in them. So there's absolutely no synthetic ingredients in them whatsoever and only five to seven things in each of them. So that's amazing. Food, protein, whole grain, fruit, veggie, healthy fat, kind of what we're all supposed to be eating. Right. That's so great. And your story, what, what it keeps coming to mind for me is that so many of our families are stuck in that situation through no fault of their own at all, where that leap for changing anything with the feeding tube or the feedings is so scary. It feels like it's not your place when it really, we have a lot more say in what we feed our kids. We should, whether your child is tube fed or not. And so I think just empowering parents while the tube and all of that medical expertise probably saved a lot of kids' lives and helped keep your child safe and growing well, there does come a turning point where like parents get back into the kind of like the decision-making 
driver's seat and boy, did you guys take the wheel. <laughs> you just <laughs> you just went for it, which is so great. And I know yeah. it's helped so many kids. Yeah. Well, and I went through a phase of time, you know, kind of a, a little bit of a PTSD phase from, from sure. everything we went through in that time, but also a phase of, of just a lot of anger at all of the doctors and dietitians that we had, you know, talked to over those, you know, six to eight months that never said this to me. Yeah. That never said, you know what, he's almost one. Why don't you just try to put some, you know, baby food into his food? I feel like now that would be happening, you know. Yeah. Eight years later, but back then I was I was mad. I'm like the answer for all this puking, all this you know pooping problems was in our kitchen all along, and nobody said anything. Yeah, I think that those conversations are happening more and more, but unfortunately, still not nearly enough. So, which is again another reason for us to be talking about this today. And then the other thing I loved hearing you say is that which we talk about in the weaning process when kids are done with their tube beads and ready to move towards oral eating. It's can be hard to transition away from feeds and to meals. And like we try to talk to parents about exactly what you're talking about, like calling a feeding a meal or breakfast instead of a feed or a session or whatever the case may be. It actually makes a big difference. Like how you think about it changes how you approach it with your child too. And it's no easy thing. It's not like a switch you can just turn off. Every parent's been trained into this, but I do actually think that that subtle piece is really important too. Not the food obviously is a huge part of it, which we're about to get into, but also just the mentality that your child is a child who needs breakfast, lunch, and dinner and some snacks. It's a lot easier to think about trans transitioning too from a formula only to real food if you think in terms of that and think in terms of thinner snack like okay like you can have a snack you know today we're 100% formula fed tomorrow we're going to have a snack of some real food okay go from there (laughs) yeah it takes the it takes the kind of mystery out of it it simplifies it a little bit I think it makes that mountain a little less scary to start climbing I met with a dietitian. I met her at like some conference we went to years ago in Colorado and she kind of lived in like the Western part and she came up to me and we were having the same conversation and she goes, you know, feeds are for cattle. (laughs) (laughs) You're right. Feeds are for cattle. Like, you know, meals are for people. So that's so true. I love that. I'm going to use it. I'll I'll mention her every time, I promise. But that's the greatest. Yeah. So I thought you've hit on it in AJ's story, certainly. But I was wondering if you would mind talking a little bit about just kind of what you know. We're going to dive into the weaning and how Real Foods helps with weaning. But just what you know about tube feeding. Like, what does the evidence show us about tube feeding blended foods versus formulas? Yeah. Well, so whenever I get this type of question, I always want to take a step back and point out that with all of the years of formula only feeding that we had and have had and still do, there was never once any study, any independent research showing that a formula only diet was preferred over a varied whole food diet. That's compelling. That's very That's important. Right? Yeah. It, it, we, there was never, ever, ever a study showing formula was better than food. Right. You know, it came out in the 70s. There's a whole, I mean, we could spend a whole hour talking about how this came to be that two fed patients were fed formula because prior to there being formulas really in like the early 1970s, if you were on a feeding tube, you were in a hospital or a nursing home, you know, you weren't going home on it. And the kids were just feeding whatever was in the cafeteria, mm-hmm. you know, that up and putting that through the tube and that was it. So, but eventually as more and more people got, you know, living on feeding tubes for longer and and more needing it and medical advances keeping people alive longer, formula was easier, right? You open a can, it technically checks all those boxes of all the vitamins and minerals you need, the protein, the carbohydrates, you know, the fats that you technically need. However, you know, the humans 
human bodies are not technical in nature at all. No, not at all. (laughs) And, and, you know, just as the same way, if you equate this to the breastfeeding movement, you know, again, in the 1970s, less than 20% of babies in the United States were breastfed because formula was easier and better. And, you know, we just were all doing it. And I like to tease my mom because I was born in the 70s. And I say, mom, what were you doing? Not breastfeeding me. Like we were poor. (laughs) And she's like, it just wasn't even talked about or thought about or even in my view whatsoever. Mm-hmm. So obviously the breast is best movement came back around pretty quickly. And, and, you know, breastfeeding should be the de facto, but if not, we have formula and that's what we are trying to get to with food. Mm-hmm. Have a working digestive system. Even if it's going through a feeding tube, food should be trialed first. And if that doesn't work, thankfully we have all these formulas that you can then trial. But again, there's never been a study showing that formula was better than food for anybody with a working digestive system. So that being said, there has been over the last, you know, probably seven or eight years, really since 2011, a growing body of evidence on blenderized diets. So that's kind of the the fancier term that, that we've given to prearranging food and putting that through a feeding tube. The first one was out of Cincinnati Children's in 2011, um, showed that kiddos that had had um, NIST and fundiplications, which, you know, usually is an additional surgery to tie off the the stomach so that they physically can't vomit, which sometimes is necessary to protect them, but oftentimes it's not necessary. And and actually, I think the protocol is changing with Nissen's in most kiddos that they are trialing blended diets now before putting a Nissen in, at least after the fact. So anyway, that was the first study that kicked all this movement off, I guess, in in the medical community, like giving some real legs to it, not just, I guess, as I like to say, not just common sense that you know, putting food into the stomach is a good thing. <laughs> and the study showed essentially that the results of the blended diet achieved the goals that the fundification that they were looking towards with a fundification. Yeah, yeah. So basically the kiddos, I mean, it is a small study. There's 33 kids, the kiddos that were fed a blenderized diet, you know, once you turn them off a of formula and put them on food, they're gagging, retching, vomiting, you know, nausea, all these different complaints improved. Reflux is another one that improved. And then this is the interesting part of that study, because that was the first study that also noted as kind of a throw away comment to a certain extent, an increased interest in oral eating. Mm-hmm. Imagine that. <laughs> yeah. I love that. You're pooping normally and you're not vomiting or wanting to vomit and like, oh, okay. Like, yeah, I guess I'll try some food. So, you know, that was the first, again, it was kind of a throwaway comment, a small little comment in there and it just came from parent feedback in that study. And so we've seen that pop up time and time again now, mm-hmm. you know, with these different studies. The most recent one was at a Boston Children's Hospital in May of 2019 is when it was published. And that was the largest study done to date on blenderized diets in a pediatric population. So there were 70 kids in that one. And again, they noticed this increased interest in oral eating. And mm-hmm. so there's a lot of thoughts behind why that is. I think it's probably a combination of factors. But yes, they're getting, you know, they're smelling different smells. They're burping up different tastes from the blended food going into their stomach. They're maybe not burping up that metallic aftertaste that formula often gives, which Mm -hmm. is (laughs) from the added vitamins and minerals there, the synthetic stuff. But then also, yeah, they're not vomiting. They're not refluxing. They're pooping normally. So they're a little more apt to want to eat orally. And then they also, you know, volume tolerance tends to go up when you're fed a ponderized diet, you know, usually due to the thickness is part of the secret of of that as well, that Mm -hmm. it's better in the stomach. But if the volume tolerance goes up, then you can get into this breakfast, lunch, dinner routine. And then you have some opportunity to get hungry. You're not just, yeah. 
said. So, and you have opportunity to engage in life in between meals instead of just be hooked up to your tube or being upright while you're waiting to digest it or whatever. Yeah. I mean, it, it opens yeah. up the world. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Sure. yeah, it's such a big difference. It's interesting just to note like the transition to real food. So when we wean kids off their feeding tubes, we wean them onto food that's available to them in their family home. We usually have them choose things that would normally be around the house. Some of those foods, better choices than others in terms of like nutritional <laughs> density, but we wean them onto solid foods and real foods. And yeah. what we noticed um, in our data collection is that there is a very dramatic, over 95% of our kids that have chronic vomiting stop vomiting when they transition to oral eating. And I just love to see this interplay between the studies that you're talking about, which talk, I mean, I do think it's two things happening. I think the tube itself can be problematic, but I also think the fact that kids are getting pumped full of liquid nutrition that is so highly processed and contains so many, you know, interesting, let's say, ingredients in them. And then the kids aren't. They're, so they're more comfortable. We all do hard things better when we're more comfortable. Yeah, for sure. And then that exposure to that as an OT, I, that's really important to me, like that kids are getting exposed to the smells and tastes in a weird way from burps yeah. or reflux yeah. of real foods. It really does make a difference. And we talk in our pyramid about how we progress from tube dependency to thriving off the tube. Yeah. We have a stage in there which talks about resting and playing, which is what, which comes before an increase in oral intake. And for me, true rest, we include in there, like making sure that all medical things are taken care of so that a child is resting. But if they're vomiting every day, can they really be rest or multiple times a day? You know, we have kids that vomit 10 times a day. Can they really achieve rest? Can they really relax and then be open to trying something that has really confusing connotations for them, which is oral foods. And so it's a really essential part, you know, from where we sit that those symptoms be controlled. And it's very helpful. And we'll link to some of these studies to kind of look at the data that talks about not only the vomiting and the kind of nausea or the physical symptoms going down and volume going up, but also just the oral acceptance, which is so huge, obviously, for what we do. I think there's two other points in there too that kind of, again, it's all part of the secret sauce. And there's not just like one magic pill with this, but one of the issues that we see quite a bit with formula fed children is we then tend to medicate these side effects. Yes. Usually they're already on a medication or two or three or four for their underlying condition. And then we place the tube because the tube isn't the underlying condition. It's supposed to help manage whatever that condition may be. Or if they're outgrowing it, maybe there's not anymore, but you know what I'm saying. Yeah. The medications they're already on, we place the tube to help manage, you know, the underlying condition, and then we medicate for these side effects. So I know when I'm on medication, even just simple antibiotics, I'm not nearly as hungry. So right. we're doing reflux meds and motility meds and anti-nausea meds. Like, eh, I don't like that's kind of working against you too to want to eat orally. Um, right. And then the other part of this too that I think is really interesting, and, and this is the whole going back to what you're talking about with when they do eat orally, they tend to de- like have that 95% decrease in vomiting. I've had so many conversations with you know doctors and clinicians who are kind of researching this or interested in researching you know why do blenderized diets 
work better, which again, I'm laughing at that because like it's food into the stomach. We never had the other studies saying that formula was better, but okay. <laughs> so I'm happy for the research that's coming out is this element of the thickness. And so Nurse uh, mm. Klein and I have talked about this quite a bit that I wish somebody could truly prove this because I think that the thickness of what's going into the stomach is incredibly important. So as you guys know, you know, when somebody is tube fed, they're already missing this cephalic phase of digestion. They're not smelling it really. They're not chewing it. They're not salivating. They're not swallowing, which is typically what turns on the digestive system. That's the beginning of it. And so mm-hmm. instead, we're just pushing this pure liquid formula directly into the stomach and expecting the stomach to treat it like food, not like a liquid. Right. So when it is, so what we find as part of that thickness is intentional and does a good thing. So yes, physics, it can just keep it down a little bit better. It doesn't reflux up as easily. But there's some thoughts out there that maybe it's triggering something in the, you know, quote unquote, second brain to actually treat this like food and not like a water or a pure liquid. Absolutely. <laughs> it's interesting. It's interesting. I mean, we do have, yeah, we have enzymes in our mouth for a reason. And I think yeah. people do underestimate the impact that they have on breaking down foods, though I'm not a GI expert. I mean, they, they have to be there for a reason, right? And yeah. when we skip them all together yeah. and then insert this synthetic liquid. Yeah, Yeah. it it makes sense. It makes a lot of sense. And then we always describe thinking about the stomach, like any container filled with something, what's more likely to slosh up if it's moving because kids are moving and and it's going to be the liquid. So we don't really, again, need a study to tell us that like a liquid thinner (laughs) product is going to cause more difficulty keeping things down it makes yeah. sense just from yeah just from the laws of physics well, and then so any any refluxy baby who, who's not too bad you know just a bottle fed refluxy baby you know your grandma my grandma my grandma's pediatrician would have said oh add some baby cereal to that and see if it helps with the reflux well right thickening it up right <laughs> so sometimes and, it works and that's like an old wives tale but sometimes it works and it's kind of that same concept and also in the general population, there's a big decrease in like spit up or vomiting around that six, seven month mark, which what happens then generally for most kids, they start food. And yeah. so it's really interesting to kind of take a peek at all of those milestones. And I do believe very firmly that they are related. And it looks like all of this evidence, if we could just like tie it all together, the, the yeah. picture that's being painted is really great. Now, of course, there are situations and there are conditions that, you know, require very specific yeah. nutrients or very specific medical conditions, allergies and whatnot. But I know that you guys have done a lot of work to provide really clear information. Can you just tell us a little bit about how people would get some information to share with their medical team and then get the ball rolling if they're interested in hearing more? Yeah, there's tons of information at realfoodblends.com or on our Facebook page. So it's facebook.com slash realfoodblends. We have a really active community there, which is great because I feel like, you know, our customers and our patients kind of talk to each other that way too. So, you know, there's a couple... The biggest question that we get is, is who is this really intended for? And there's two big parameters here or two big qualifiers, I should say. So one, is there a working digestive system? So is the digestive system intact? And then two, are they over the age of one? Because Mm -hmm. one, typically a, a child would go to whole milk and table food and be off of, you know, breast milk or infant formula. So if those two things are in play, then yeah, you're a candidate for using real food for enjoying real food. And, and, for benefiting from real food. You know, the the USDA recommends that 
Americans in general eat a wide variety of real whole foods and avoid added sugars. Mm -hmm. So they don't say, you know, asterisk, unless you have a feeding tube, and then you should just be on formula all the time. Right, right, right. They left that out on purpose. Yeah. (laughs) If you apply those guidelines to tube fed people that have a working digestive system, and they're over the age of one, that's really what Real Food Blends has done. So again, on our website, realfoodblends.com, tons of information. People can order trial packs and sample the meals that way as well. This is just food. So it doesn't have to be a prescription. It doesn't, it's not a drug by any means. But if they do want insurance to cover, it, which the vast majority of insurances do, including most state Medicaid plans, they need to get their doctor to write their orders for it. And we've got a lot of information on our website about how to do that as well. It's becoming easier and easier. You know, most doctors are pretty, <laughs> are pretty gung-ho about, yeah, you should have a vegetable, you know, like, right. oh, it's been tube fed for four years and has never had a vegetable. Like, okay, let's look at something different. So yeah. Most medical team members just need to have it framed for them. Like this is just a kid that needs to eat, right? Like let's forget about the tube and everything else. And it's very rare that you come across for us, it's weaning, challenging a medical team that doesn't know about weaning to consider it. Most people, when they're presented with the information, like the stuff that our listeners can find on your website about your products, but about blended diets and the, and the evidence there, they're more than willing to come along for the ride. It just makes so much sense. Yeah. Yeah. You know, from the clinical side, from the dietitian side they're just it's just changed the way things have always been done you yeah. know during their careers so but again the vast majority 99.9% of dietitians are big believers in the power of real food they yeah need to apply it to, to their patient population and i will say one other kind of you know qualifier or caveat with this discussion too is we need to be careful that when i say a working digestive system you know if a kid has been on a feeding tube long enough there might be a lot of formula intolerance side effects that are masking the fact that there is a working digestive system under there. So we have to go back into the patient history or the kiddo's history and say, wait, why was the tube originally placed? You know, tube was placed when they were, you know, in the NICU or when they were six months old because of aspiration risk. Oh, and they're cleared to eat orally. Mm-hmm. Okay, like if there's no, you know, no issues with what they're allowed to eat orally, then they don't need, you know, a super specialized formula. They shouldn't be on the elemental formulas. They shouldn't, you know, food should be considered at that point. Yeah. So, yeah. We see that. Oh, they're on the elemental formula. They can't, or they're, you know, fed continuously. They can't have real food. It's like, well, wait a second. <laughs> Why? Right. <laughs> right. We see that so often that children that are on continuous feeds or on, formulas or whose physicians are just, or dietitians also are just really reluctant to consider a change. And and in their defense, I think they think they're keeping the child safe by not changing anything because they're not the ones feeding them and cleaning up the vomit five times a day. And they're not seeing their tears when, or the mother's tears and the father's tears or the child more importantly, in some ways, like we, everybody's in a bad spot with it. And so then that's why these conversations can be really helpful to start getting people back to thinking about the before. And that's what we do in our evaluation process too. We like go right back to the beginning and say, wait a minute, unless there's a significant problem that preceded the tube that is GI related, or, you know, in some cases there's some extenuating medical circumstances, then it's time to don't let's not the sky's the limit. Let's not limit what our expectations or hopes and dreams are for our kids. We don't do that around anything. Why would we do it around food? You're exactly right. And then I know that, you know, kind of on the same topic, I know that there's a lot of concern, you know, from the medical team on, oh, they're not going to get their daily calories, or they're not going to get complete nutrition today. Like the kid's going to die if they only got 90% of their vitamin C today. Mm -hmm, Right. (laughs) Like my daughter Luca has been eating goldfish off the floor. Nobody cares if she was she ate nutritionally (laughs) today. You know, what do we go by? 
we go by like, how healthy is she? Is, is she growing correctly? Is she performing at school? Like we look at all of these things, not, you know, did we check every single box for calories, fat, every vitamin and mineral, you know, that we possibly could for this particular day. And I know in the weaning world, that really gets to be an issue. Like, no, 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 mm-hmm. they have to have, you know, 100% of all these things and nobody eats 100% of their vitamins and minerals every single day. And nobody's expected to eat 100% of their vitamins and minerals from only synthetic sources, which is what we know our food feeders to do. So there, and there, yeah, yeah, there is research that also supports that we are not meant to regulate our intake nutritionally over a 24, like meal to meal or in a 24 hour period, like it happens over time. Yeah. I mean, I think we all know, like there are times, there are seasons where I get more vitamins than others because of the food that's available where I live and, yeah. and stuff like that. So I, I think it's the whole picture that people, yeah forget to look at. And again, because the numbers and the measurables help keep kids safe when they're little and really in a medical crisis, when that crisis has been resolved or at least stabilized, it's the medical team, I think, that has the hardest time stopping to think about the measurables and starting to think about the child. And we just love love, love that you guys are making meals yeah. <laughs> for families and for children who are going to be, you know, friends and eaters and students yeah. and everything else that they're going to set their minds to and that their family wants to be involved in. And so thank hey, you so much. Oh, I like this story real quick. So, you know, we were talking so much about kiddos here, but we, you know, a lot of adults use our meals too, because again, they're meals, you know, I don't make chicken for Tony and I and say, well, this is an adult meal, Luca, you have to have chicken nuggets. Like, I don't know, you know, she eats chicken, we eat chicken. Right. <laughs> And so we have, we've gotten quite a few stories throughout the years of like, you know, because food affects the spousal relationship too, when somebody's placed onto a feeding tube. And I tease that Tony and I would not know what to talk about if we weren't talking about what's for dinner. Right. (laughs) It's like, I don't know. So, but that really can affect the spousal relationship when one is no longer eating orally. And we've had so many cute stories of like, well, if my wife's having, you know, your chicken meal, then I have chicken. And if she's having salmon, and I'm like, oh my gosh, this, this is the same normalcy, this mealtime element that we're talking about with these, you know, weaning kids. It happens in the spousal and the family relationships too. Yeah. And we, we keep talk about that all the time. Like the togetherness gets so underestimated and like what we do together as a family, how we engage in our day and our meals can't be underplayed. It's part of the way out of tube dependency should your child be ready. So that's really sweet to think about. Um, oh gosh. Well, thank you so much, Julie. So we're going to link to all of you. We're going to link to your website so that our listeners can find you in our show notes and anything else that you want to draw their attention to on your site or any other resources. Sounds like that community is a good one. So the community is good one. Underneath our RD hub, and I'll give you the exact link for this. We've compiled all those research studies that have been done over the last you know nine years. And so there's probably like eight or nine that are up there right now. So that's really easy to find. So I'll give you that link too, so they can just click through and read all those studies. Definitely that Boston Children's study that just came out, well, you know, seven or eight months ago is so interesting. Talking about you know the aspiration risk and how how much healthier these kids were. It was the first one that ever put into context that the kids that were fed blenderized diets actually had reduced readmission rates. Oh my goodness. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. So that's a, that's a big deal. That's huge. Overall. So there's a lot of good information in all those studies. So I'll, I'll make sure I send that link to you guys. Yeah. We'll make sure that we share it. Well, Julie, thank you for being here. I hope that your year gets off to a great start. Me too. Thank you. Yeah. Take care. Bye guys. Bye. Thanks for joining us for this episode of the tube to table podcast. Every week, we're going to share our show notes at thrivewithspectrum.com. 
In the show notes, you can find a summary of what we discussed and links to all the resources that we mentioned. Also, you can visit us on social media and Instagram and Facebook. We can be found at Thrive with Spectrum. And on Twitter, you can find us at Thrive with SP. Please don't hesitate to reach out to us on social media and let us know if you have any input or any topics that you'd really like to see us address. We'll be back next week. 